Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. So this is Michael Waits from Asia Tech Podcast Stories. We are here today with Dr. Snehal Patel to talk about a whole bunch of things, investing, my doc, the medical profession, tourism, a whole bunch of different things. How are you doing today? I am doing really well. You're in Singapore, right? That's correct. Are you, yeah. are you originally from Singapore? I'm not, though I've been here nine years, so it's starting to blend, I have to say. But originally uh, born and raised in the U.S., um, okay. moved out to Singapore in 2008. So where I'm, I'm from the United States as well, but I haven't lived in the United States for almost 30 years. I'm probably, oh, no. yeah, I'm probably, <laughs> I'm probably a little bit older than you, um, maybe a lot older, actually. But where, where are you from originally? So born and raised in uh, Louisiana, so from New Orleans, so down south. That is but, awesome. Uh, I, but I moved up uh, from grad school onwards, and I would say my sort of second home now is New York City, which is where I moved from to move to Singapore. So That is awesome. So I have friends who actually have homes in um, New Orleans as well. I've never been down there for Mardi Gras and stuff, but I hear it's pretty insane sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's a great place. <laughs> so what brought you to Singapore originally? Yeah, so I think um, it's an interesting story from that. Uh, we, I was you know, practicing uh, in New York looking to get into venture capital and early stage investing. And it sort of rounded up a couple of offers, one in uh, the New York City area as well as one in California, which is, of course, the, the breadbasket of, of tech. Sure. But um, out of left field, really, I mean, and there was an opportunity arose at a large family office based here in Singapore to come out um, and initially focus on sort of emerging markets in the healthcare and education spaces. So we sort of, my, my fiance and my wife um, actually just sort of rolled the dice. We're like, look, you know what? We've been in New York, love it a lot, but let's let's try to have an adventure and go somewhere else that would be interesting. And so we decided to move out to Singapore. But this is actually even more interesting to me, actually. So you are a doctor, yes. a, a lawyer. Yes. <laughs> right. And that's both from Columbia, am I right? That's right. That's right, yeah. And just what was the interest in venture capital? And just to give you a little bit of a background, so my brother's a neurosurgeon in Connecticut. His wife is a reproductive, I mean, a reconstructive hand surgeon and plastic surgeon. So very familiar with the medical profession. Um, but what was it about venture capital or investing that got you so interested? Great question. And it's one that, um, so just, I'll, let me skip ahead a bit. I actually ended up getting a sort of work. I'm a Kaufman fellow. So the Kaufman fellows program is at BC education seminar. I bring that up primarily because a lot of the folks that end up doing the Kaufman program are similar. We call ourselves misfits, you know, overeducated, spent right. too much time jumping around industries. And we realized that when the great thing about venture investing is that it, in a way, brings together a lot of the different subspecialties you've picked up through your sort of career. So in my, in my, my particular uh, case, it was being a health practitioner, which I found very interesting, spent a lot of time learning about and, you know, and training over. And then in the legal side saying, okay, well, now that you have that background, how are you looking at putting together deals and, you know, and that sort of thing? The, the logical construct of that is, okay, well, healthcare investing, it requires a bit of both, right? You, to really understand the sector, um, it does absolutely help to have um, some technical understanding of that space. At the same time, you know, the legal, the legal side is essentially a proxy in many ways for, for business experience and whatnot in terms of understanding how deals get to put together, right, and right, right. et cetera. So yeah, that's sort of, it's, it seemed to make sense. <laughs> together. I like, I like this concept of sort of being a misfit and being overeducated, right? And I think the best part for me, because I do some venture capital, some angel investing as well. As you know, I'm a limited partner in the art and capital portfolio. Yep. And, for me, you know, people ask me like, what's the most interesting part about it? And I kind of agree with you. It's, I get to look at new and different things every single day. And I know that sounds a little bit trite, mm -hmm. but don't you but, find that like, so what, what, I'm curious, like what kind of doctor, what kind of medicine were you practicing? Yeah. So I trained as a surgeon. So it was general surgery initially. Um, and then uh, in, in full disclosure, did not complete my residency. I did my residency, started it up in Boston. Where? So, it was, uh, so at, the, at, at the Beth Israel Deaconess and Brigham and Women's Hospitals. Br Brigham and so, Women's, okay. Yeah, so, yeah. so the two of them, because in, the, in that same campus, rotated to children's and others. Got it. Um, so obviously very prestigious and great, fantastic sort of co-residents and such. But sure. One day you just wake up and you realize this is great work, but I, you know, for me, I felt that there was other things in healthcare that I could have impact on, and I wanted to sort of move and see what I could, what else I could do 
um, beyond you know sort of the, the very noble art of being a clinician. So I think that's where my journey started, <clears throat> and sort of moving back, initially focusing on sort of deal work, and then VC, and then entrepreneurship. So if, and some people would say I did it backwards, but <laughs> you know you always come to these a journey's a journey, so you never know how it's going to really end up as you start off. So yeah, I'm not really sure I understand the concept of doing it backwards, right? Like you said, every, every <laughs> because everybody's journey is really different, right? I mean, you there are some people that may start in venture capital and actually end up being surgeons. Uh, it's not often, but all this kind of stuff can happen. Is there a history of medicine in your family? Yes, um, like a good Asian American family, we have a ton of doctors in our family. So my my father's a physician, Fair sister, enough. brother-in-law, cousins, you know, you, you name it. So I was uh, I was a black sheep in some ways because sure. um, had to you know say okay, well, we're going to spend all the time and money and effort to go through this whole practice. I think at some level, my mom still doesn't understand it. <laughs> but, I was going to say she was so uh, she was so proud of you when you graduated from med school and probably got your uh, JD as well. And then people ask her now, and she's like, "I don't know. He lives in Singapore." Yeah, does something there or something <laughs> with a new new company or something. A new company. So I, I guess I guess tech is now becoming you know pretty prestigious in its own right, so it's okay. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's funny because I was I was talking to another founder today of his own company. He has a family business, and I won't say medicine is like a family business, but there's a certain amount of pressure depending on where you fall inside of your family for yeah. what you're meant to do, right? So as the oldest son in my in my family, without giving up sort of my background, you know, I had really two choices. I was either going to be a lawyer or a doctor, and I didn't right. want to be a lawyer, and I really hate the sight of blood. So my brother, I let him be the doctor. And I've yeah. been I've been investing my whole been investing my whole life. So for me, again, I was the black sheep of my family too, and I kind of understand that whole feeling. Yeah. And so tell me this though: you move out to Singapore, you start working for a family office, and you start looking for opportunities in sort of the health investment sector. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I mean, the company that I ended up sort of coming over for was a like I said, a large family office, and the founder was a sort of a unique guy. He he was self made or took a modest family fortune, was able to translate that into, into a large sum of, of, of capital. Wow. And for him, you know, initially most of his capital was earned on, in the public market space, but he really? was quite interested as he would go in and he was uh, exclusively would invest in early stage or I would say early emerging markets. So high risk, but high yield um, was looking at saying, look, you know, if I'm making this, if I'm actually helping spur or providing capital for the public markets, it would be really interesting to look at things at the really early stage, more the entrepreneur side. And that, that sort of really dovetailed nicely with what I was looking to do at the time. Um, was no real sort of plan. I mean, it was more like, look, you know, have some capital. We'll mentor you guys, but let's get out there. Let's start to make some investments, understand, you know, we're not going to make it you know, perfect from day one, right. but we'll learn as we go. We'll start to hopefully make an impact. So I think that was great. I mean, for me, it was, it was opportunistic, you know, like you, I think a lot of people say luck is a big part of any equation. For sure. So to have that opportunity was a massive break to actually be able to learn about the intricacies of the Asian healthcare system, sort of ecosystem um, while, you know, being paid well and sort of understanding it from the perspective of an investor, which I think is pretty unique. It's really so, unique, actually. Can yeah. I just interrupt you for a second? It sounds like someone's doing the dishes or something behind you. Somebody... Oh, sorry. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a little construction outside that unfortunately got louder. Yeah, yeah. we can try give us Give us one second. Let's yeah, if you just kind of relocate a little bit. It's not that bad, but I just don't want other people to be annoyed when they're listening to it. I personally find the conversation fascinating. Yeah. Hello? Yeah, I think it actually got a little bit louder. Oh, we got louder. Weird. Okay. Um, let's see. It's not loud enough. Is that loud? It's loud in here. It's not. Um, let's see, Michael. Maybe we should just move it further away from the... This is just one of the vagaries of being in a growing economy. <laughs> you just have to. This room is, yeah, this room is definitely a lot quieter. Or it's cut off everywhere else. It should be okay. Can you hear me? It's okay. I can. It now sounds like you're a little bit of a little bit of a wind tunnel, but it sounds better. That that's actually much better. But I do. I think it's actually quite funny, right? So we're in a region where we say there's a lot of growth, where it's like the next big thing is coming, and then in the background there's construction noise. It's actually the perfect metaphor for the conversation we're having. <laughs> 
Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so tell me, tell me your approach to risk. Like most people who are, don't exist in the public markets and haven't actually been investing their whole lives or haven't been brought up in an investing environment, right? Their first, like their first uh, trip up is, you know, how do I handle risk? How do I manage risk? How do I understand what that risk is? And you've kind of looked at this at both from both sides, right? Because you started off in the investment side, and now you're actually in the entrepreneurship side, which are two different levels of risk. But I'm curious right. how you got introduced to that. Were you mentored by us? How did that work? And then, then we'll switch to the entrepreneurship side, if you don't mind. Yeah. So, I mean, like the, so the company that I ended up getting the offer for or from and where I started my, my career out here in Asia, um, you know, the, 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 the entrepreneur, the founder was actually someone who really mentored us in, in this, in a way, I mean, sort of saying, look, you know, he, the, the kind of work that he had done over 20 years to, to raise his considerable amount of wealth pretty shocking, you know, and, and his ability, you know, to kind of stay the course when things look pretty bumpy. So he, there was a lot of discussion in, in, in terms of, you know, he has a very sort of contrarian approach to investing. He really looked at sort of uh, as oppor opportunities from a macro perspective. So he was very much against sort of the, what we see now is in, in the public markets, the quant driven sort of approach. Oh, tell and me, just think, tell me about that. Actually, I have my own views. On this. So he was opposed to the quant driven approach to, to investing. Yeah, because I mean, from his perspective, is like if you have enough capital where you can weather the ups and downs, and you really believe in the overall macro growth story of whatever it is, the company, the sector, the country that you're investing in, right? That ultimately, if you stay the course, you're going to be you're going to reap the rewards of that of that persistence. And you know, on one hand, that seems very simplistic and, and sort of it's kind of elegantly simple, but it's very hard to do at the time when your portfolio may be down sixty percent, seventy percent because you've hit you know. Maybe a correction or something. Well, right? look, I mean, the hardest problem for a human investor is their emotion, right? So, correct. So, correct. For, yeah, like I said, so I was in the public markets for years, and, you know, the hardest thing is really just to stay the course, right? If you really believe in, the, <laughs> but it really is, right? If you really believe in the long term macro story, yeah, then exactly. you're just a, you're a buy and hold. But if, yeah. you, if you don't, then you're just really, are you really trading for ticks? Because this is the question that I used yeah. to ask other investors. Are you a tick trader, really? Because if you are, then I find that really boring. But if you're a, a fundamental long-term holder or shorter, I don't care. Either way, it's yeah. fine with me. Yeah. If you don't yeah. believe the story, then sell it for sure. Exactly, exactly. And that was, a, that was literally the uh, – we would go back and forth on some discussion about a particular investment or even as we started to build our own businesses. And it always come back you know, to a very – very simple but basic equation. It's like, look, Snehal, do you believe in the story that we're, we're going after? Yes or no? It's, it's kind of binary. If it's a yeah. no or, or sort of on the fence, then get out. You know, We should be doing something else. But if you really believe in it and you can back that up, that's not just a gut instinct no, thing because no, no. that's not good enough. Nope. But you can back it up on sort of a much broader sort of vantage point, then let's stay the course. Let's, let's double down. Let's continue to focus on that point because she said he would tell us, in my history, every time I've sort of I checked my emotions at the door. You know, I, I see a momentary a massive drop, but I stayed the course. It's I've always been vindicated in the long run, and I think that's something that is being lost in this sort of rush to be able to get your tick, as you say, right. um, in the short term. Because I don't really, I'm not interested in short term. I'm interested in staying the course for for a long term, much bigger upside. So right. So my yeah, so my, think, my view on this has always been that market dislocations are opportunities for profit. So yeah, if the market dislocates either up or down, so if it if it's just too exuberant, you sell it, right? And and that yeah. me it means it creates sort of a long term view that that's going to go down. Yeah. So you know, take any kind of sort of tragedy or big market move event, right? So like when Greenspan, I think it was in 1990, I can't remember when he said the markets are experiencing irrational exuberance. And exuberance. They got sold. Yeah. They got sold off. You know, 30 percent or whatever it was. That was a buying opportunity, and it was an obvious buying opportunity to anybody who'd been in the markets. But those types of events happen all the time. And what's interesting to me, and I'm curious for your view on this as well. Um, is that I think that happens in the private markets as well, but it's just not as easy to spot. I totally agree with you, um, and it, it absolutely does. And I think the highs are higher, the lowers are lower, right? I mean, it's because of the fact that you don't have that, you don't have the compensation that you have in the public markets by having sort of different people on the sidelines flooding into the market to correct, quote unquote, correct right. what may be an overcorrection or undercorrection. You, you have to wait for that entire wave to go out. Um, for the market to crater before you start to get new capital into the into the market. So I think that's part of the trick, right? And I, if you look at it from the perspective of a VC, an early stage investor, you have those same sort of 
discussions when you when you're trying to raise capital from LPs, right? So right, how right, do right. I structure it? Um, yeah, no, it's 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 very interesting because it, but your point being exactly what you started off with, Michael, about this idea that emotion it is all about emotion, right? It is, uh, and that's why the rational investor hypothesis that the Chicago School theory is now being sort of pushed aside because it doesn't make sense, right? We're we do have these 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 biases that we have to work with. Correct. So. What's your view? So in the public markets, there's much less of a what I call information arbitrage. Right. Because there are rules, obviously, around disclosure, and because there are so many people involved in the public markets, information travels faster. In the right. private markets, whether it's venture capital or private equity, it does seem to me that there's an information arbitrage available, and I'm wondering what your view on that is. Totally agree with you. I mean, and that's sort of the, I mean, if you look at it, it's exactly as you sort of laid out from the perspective of the fact that if you are in that market and you're operating a business, um, you're, and, and you've done the proper sort of diligence when it comes to looking at that business as an investor, um, what you're able to sort of uncover if you have the proper tools at hand are going to be, are going to put you at either strategic advantage over potential other potential investors, right? Right. Um, and when sort of hype driven bubbles occur, if you're looking at it with clear eyes and you also, once again, are in that market, it becomes easier for you to spot those those opportunities. So I agree with you. I think that's part of the reason why the highs are higher and the lowers are lower because of the fact that there is this, this – the arbitrage comes from the fact that there is an asymmetry that can't be rectified quickly. Right. That's so, the, right. And you actually bring up a great word. I like that word. Actually, the asymmetry is what creates the opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Right, so the dislocations create asymmetry. The, noticing the asymmetry creates the opportunity. And to me, and again, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, but to me in the, in the private markets, right, so if this year, and I'm going to make something up, right, but I think it's indicative of how some of the people in the private markets work, right? If this year, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning are the big thing, it means that things like maybe virtual reality and artificial, you know, and yeah. that type of stuff kind of falls off, and that's where the opportunity to invest in those things when it's not like the big new thing, yeah, yeah. You get an opportunity to have information arbitrage around that, right? I agree. And sentiment I mean, I, arbitrage. Sorry. Yeah, I'm sure you're. I mean, you're familiar with this, but Gardner publishes the hype cycle, right? Yes, so yes, yes. That's and my then, favorite. I, yeah, I love it because it's exactly as you sketch out, right? People will hype it up, and then there's a trough of disillusionment, and then eventually you get this sort of steady state where the the technology or whatever we're you know whatever the 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 the, the tech du jour is has made it to a point where it's become mainstream and stable and accepted. And that it's sort of, there's no, there's no more symmetry there or no more arbitrage to be, to be had, but it's a successful sort of technology. I love it because every time they publish that, just seeing where the various technologies that we're talking about, whether it be Bitcoin one year, AR another right, year, right, right. telemedicine, whatever it is, they all fall on different sides of that curve. And you can see it kind of reflected in, in hindsight being 2020, but you can see it being reflected as Kind of how they sketch it out, so I love that. Yeah, I love it. I love it too because you can see it affect the private market valuations of individual companies yes. and just sectors. And you're like, that's too expensive. I'm going to wait. And actually, it does come down. And we can yep. see we can see multiple examples of that in Southeast Asia, which we can address later. So, are you still investing now? Less so. I mean, we've so we, when I left um, when I left the the fund. I left with two other senior people in that fund to set up uh, our vehicle. The, the vehicle the investment vehicle is called Sana Partners. Right. And what's been great about that is that there's three of us. Um, we all keep each other sane. We all have different <laughs> perspectives on way the way we invest. But you know our capital base is the same. So when we end up, our model is quite different in the perspective that we launch our own company. So we're the entrepreneurs with sort of our our own capital base at the, at the front end, um, but with two other partners, right? Right. Uh, and that's that's where we started off. So we would we made some small angel investments in other external businesses to start off with, but then we quickly sort of transitioned to this company builder model, which right, right, right. Uh, for us it was just much, much more. I guess it was more intuitive to us. So it's something that we really wanted to do. Um, we saw market gaps. We really wanted to exploit them. You know, one of us would be, you know, look, I really, I get it, and I'm really charged to go and, and make this company successful and, and really grow the business. So that's sort of what we do. So, you know, long answer to your your question, not really doing active investments as much these days because I think we're focusing on the companies that we we're building at this point. 
So, but how, how does that work? So, do you focus on specific sectors or or not yeah. at all? Like, I I, I kind of like this concept of the sort of building venture capitalists, right? The operating venture capitalists. So, I think it works really well, right? And if you look yeah. at if you look at businesses in the United States that do this, right? So, science probably does this a little bit in the U.S. and there are other funds that do this as well. And I kind of like their I like their methodology. And you brought up another word. I, I like this actually. The market gaps. I talk about this all the time. If you're involved and building things, it's so much easier to see the gap in the market because in the context of building what you're building, you think, if I just had this thing, I'll build that thing. Right. Right? Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. And I think that's where we spend a lot, at least at the front end, that's that's where we spend most of our time saying, okay, we are really passionate about a sector. To, To answer your first question, um, yeah, well, the three of us have different sort of strengths, and, and we're all actually lawyers at some level, but okay. um, then have different sort of other qualifications. So for me, it was healthcare, which is an obvious sort of point makes, of um, focus. For me. Um, so yeah, within those verticals, we say, oh, what's what's addressable? What are the gaps in the market? Let's not overcome. And this is something we learned from our mentor, you know, our, our prior boss, saying, look, everyone wants to complicate things. The, the world is complicated, but essentially, you know, successful businesses fill gaps. That's what they do. Right. And in the, if you're the right person, you got to execute, and you have certain the winds have to blow your way as well. There's, there's other factors involved, but just identify a proper gap. And if you can prop, if you identify that, you can build a business to fill it. So that's really our been our mentality, I guess. Right. So if you're looking at the healthcare sector, what do your partners look at? Um, we have a business that's doing, I would say, back office, so, so fintech, because it's less tech, but more operations management, because we feel like in this space and in this market, you have high-end um, sort of consultancies, the big four, et cetera, that manage the books and sort of the operations of large companies. But for SME startups, right. there's kind of a gap in that space. So we built a company around that. Essentially, it was a spinoff from our own internal sort of compliance mechanism that we sort of now are now is doing well. It's, it's serving a lot more clients now. Um, and, and, and you're going to laugh, but we also have uh, a high-end luxury uh, sort of spirits business, which is connected to F&B outlets. What's the name of that business? So, um, well, the one that's probably most well-known in this region is a, is a bar uh, called 28 Hong Kong Street. Okay. So, yeah, it's uh, one of the, t- it was, it's, I think the sixth year it's been recognized as one of the world's top 50 bars um, and there's a business that spun off from that, which is about providing the high-end spirits that a lot of these uh, establishments need um, to sort of provide um, cocktails for their customers. It's called Proofing Company, um, and so works with a lot. Of, they work with a lot of the big restaurants and hotels, and, and not just in Singapore, but actually now we're in China, Southeast Asia. So it's got a pretty big footprint. But I, I love this. You actually opened a bar. Just like a physical yeah. car. And is there a differentiating? No, I love it. But is there, and, and this is why I love these conversations, right? Because you can get on the phone with someone, you can see that they're, you know, an MDJD. That in and of itself is interesting. And you can see that they run a company called MyDoc, which frankly we haven't talked about yet, but I really want to talk about that too, <laughs> because that seemed to be the focus of this, which is not, which makes me super happy. And then we find out that you're also running a bar called 28 Hong Kong Street. What, is there some differentiating thing there? Is it just the customer service? Is it a cocktail? Like, what is the thing that makes it so good and so different? Yeah. So, I mean, so essentially, once, so my two, my two business partners is Sena. Um, we are, we all hail from New York in some capacity. And I think when we were there, there was, you know, we would go out and, there's a lot of, at the time, this cocktail renaissance that was taking place, which was quite interesting. You'd go and have a cocktail that was being made from a recipe that was sort of lost to time. But then, you know, a couple of sort of pioneers had brought that brought it back. When we moved to this region, the three of us were working for, for, this, for the, the VC private equity fund. Got it. Uh, we realized when we left, we're like, look, you know, we wanted to set Sana Partners up. And that's going to be our sort of lodestar. But let's try to figure out, you know, something that's interesting that we can sort of, you know, yeah, I don't know. Just get our hands get our hands dirty with. I think all our partners and wives and girlfriends and whatnot all thought we were having an early midlife crisis. <laughs> right. you're, you're too young. Fair. You're too young I mean, for that. Sort, no. of, sort of like the question which you would ask when you're like, oh, so you're you're running this, you're working with this multi billion dollar family office, and now you've opened a bar. So that's a fair it's a fair analysis, I have to say. Fair but the, the gap was really simple. It was once again going back to this market gap piece. You have a, a, a in Singapore at the time, and and obviously now. A, a very high-end, you know, international sort of crowd, yep. people who come from London, from New York, from San Francisco, from, you know, you, you name it. And this is, you know, Singapore really for Southeast Asia has become that sort of collecting jar for a lot of high-end sort of people that are world travelers, yep. elites, etc. But is. on top of which, even the sort of the Singaporeans that we'd met 
where people have traveled tremendously. You know, it's a very sort of rich and vibrant um, sort of society here. And we look around, and you'd have like you, you know, sort of the classic bars and you know whatever restaurants, etc. But it wasn't as dynamic as in markets like in London, New York. So we said, oh, look, you know, it just would seem if you put two and plus two plus two equals four. If we put in a, a product that was high-end quality that was really ministering to people what they were expecting in a, in a market of, with this much sort of wealth and sophistication, would probably be able to you know grab a couple of dollars. Right. And that was really what it was. And it was motivated also authentically because we really are passionate about that space. So you put the two together and we were like, look, let's, 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 let's open a bar. It's a speakeasy. We're going to set it up in, in a part of town that – Makes sense geographically. It's between you know the central business district and a big sort of area that where there's a lot of restaurants and shopping called Clark Key. Yep. But the the middle streets were kind of quiet then. There was nothing there, so real estate was low cost. So we we're like, okay, well this is an arbitrage opportunity. So we can actually sort of use the parlance of being good entrepreneurs, getting a, an asset at a low cost, put something in there, and then really spending time and you know effort to make sure that it is the best of its type. And I think, and once again, we benefited from timing, right? We were able right. to launch that right at the beginning of what has now become, you know, arguably, if you talk to people who know in the industry, Singapore really is in the top five cities in the world when it comes to sophistication of F&B, um, you know, and so we, we happen to catch the, the up, upswing on that. So I think that's, you know, there's a lot of those different factors that go together. Um, so, yeah. But you're right. It's it's not what I would typically connect uh, the dots with when we, <laughs> we look at our backgrounds. Um, but, you know. Makes life interesting. It does, and I also so I also find it interesting that you use the word arbitrage when you were talking about opening the bar. And I've, tell me if you, <laughs> but, but tell me if you disagree with this, right? Do you find that your mind is constantly thinking like an investor, even in situations where you're not investing money per se to get a return, but you're doing the same type of analysis in the sense that you're thinking, because the bar is a different story, but in your regular life where you're thinking, tonight I want to go out and have dinner with my wife, but it's Thursday. So you go through that whole analysis process when you're doing that, thinking like an investor? Do you know what I mean? Like, does it dominate? Because I'll tell you why I'm asking, because for me it does. It, to me, everything looks like an investment or a trade. <laughs> okay. And some okay. of them are more long term, and some of them more short term, and only because I did that for so long, yeah, that my mind kind of works that way. And I'm wondering how you think about that. Only because you've said that word a bunch of times. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you, you bring that up. I mean, I think that's where um, being straddling this weird uh, sort of nexus, which, as you pointed out way uh, earlier, is quite common these days between an entrepreneur and an investor. Right. It's, it becomes quite interesting. I, I, maybe I, I, I tweak what you just said and say that for me, I'm almost looking at op gaps. Like, I mean, yep. it's really like which is a, it's just it's basically the same. The same thing. Same yeah, different, different side of the same point, right? Um, essentially saying, look, you know, wow, this is pretty neat. Or why don't they have a service that does X in your middle of a, you know, whatever it is? Right. So, yeah, definitely I can't help think that way because you're always thinking about – it's not about the money necessarily, but no. just kind of the excitement of being like, if I can launch that, that's pretty cool. It's pretty right. interesting. I can actually bring something into the world that – didn't exist and actually, yeah, it'll, it'll make money, but it'll just be successful of some sort, right? Right. So I think that's and that's probably the entrepreneurial side of it that's really kind of pushing. But yeah. it reminds me when in 2006 or 2007, I went on vacation with a friend of mine who was running his own business. It must have been 2006. And he'd never worked at a big company before. He'd never worked at a company. He'd always ran his own thing. And we were uh -huh. – this is going to sound really bourgeoisie, but I'm going to say it anyway. We were, <laughs> we were – you know, it's like call a spade a spade. Anyway, he, we were sitting around the pool and he said to me – because we're on vacation. He said to me, can I ask you a question? He said, when you're on vacation, are you still getting paid? <laughs> and I hadn't thought about it. I was like, that's the dumbest question. And in the middle of my thought process, I'm like, no, actually, that's interesting, right? That is awesome. It's so awesome, that. right? And because for me, I had always worked at whether it was Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or Citigroup or whatever. It was always, you know, I was getting a paycheck whether I was in the office or not, for good or for better or for worse, right? Yeah. yeah. But now, yeah. so I haven't had a job per se for five years, and everything that I've created, I've created from scratch. And that feeling, like you said, of it's not the huh. money. Yeah. It's that ability to look at nothing, and conceptualize something, and then turn it into something. 
To- yeah, absolutely. And I, I love, and it may be bourgeoisie, but I love that that anecdote because um, I've had similar conversations <laughs> with folks, and it's it's a little it's kind of tangential, but related in the sense that people, you know, we have our long weekends coming up, and you know, I, I mean, we really we have now a lot of employees for the various companies that we have, and we obviously want them recharged and you know taking the sure. proper amount of time off. It, I mean, and I'm not just saying that to sort of sound right. I mean, no, it, I agree. it's pretty clear that in fact. If I had my brothers, people would be working nonstop, and then they would take a proper break, take two weeks off, literally throw everything away, and right. don't even talk, don't even don't even communicate. Right? That, that's how I recharge. You know. But anyway, to your point, yeah, when people say, "Oh, yeah, it's great, we have a long weekend coming up," and I remember when we first stepped off from our nice, well-paid, you know, <laughs> weekly pay, or monthly paycheck job, I'm like, actually, you know, long weekends are the cruelest times because. Um, we're still paying money for rent. We're still paying money for salary. Right. Uh, I'm not getting paid because we're not generating revenue, and right. I'm, you know, like I'm still working. <laughs> so yeah. I can totally identify with that with that feeling. Right. That's, uh, that's that's pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm constantly asking people what day it is, and I think they think that I'm just taking the piss out of them, but I actually don't really know. <laughs> and to be and to be fair. And maybe you can counter this if you think that I'm wrong, but I'm having more fun now than I've ever had in my whole life. And yeah, and I'm. And on a on a month to month basis, I'm earning way less income, but it doesn't matter because it's the like we said earlier. I'm taking a long term view on myself, right? Uh-huh. That's the trade I'm making, and that's probably the trade you're making too. About like I'm investing long term in me, yeah, and that's a much better trade. I, I totally agree. Totally agree with you. And it's it's a it's it's, it's a in your I think pointing out what you just pointed out, I think is something that for people who are thinking about making that plunge from, you know, a very cushy, very high pay, but also a very prestigious job into sort of right. the abyss of startups. And the abyss. It, it's, it's something that you, you think about, but at the end of the day, if you don't get that feeling that you just sort of put your finger on, it may not be the right course for you. And I say this, I mean, I get asked to speak uh, at some of the local universities about entrepreneurship, which I'm actually very thankful that the government here and even the university systems and I think education in general is started to identify that entrepreneurship is something that's really important, you know, creativity. Um, But I I make this point, like, I don't think the instructors like it when I do it, but I do it anyway when I start off. You know, there may be 200, you know, know, students in this classroom as an intro course on entrepreneurship. And I'll just look around and say, look, you know, this is great. You guys are all interested. And it's, it's absolutely the right thing for you to be to, to know about. That being said, of the 200 people in this class, probably two of you guys should actually do this. Right. Um, you know, it's not you – know, I know it's kind of the sexy, cool thing to be an entrepreneur these days. But it's, you know, I think it's – we're doing ourselves a disservice by denigrating um, necess- as, a, as you know, I think as a net logical result, I think this happens – the absolutely important jobs of you know being that high paid person at Goldman Sachs you know, or whatever it is, um, because the the entire market works only if all these different pieces are are, are properly sort of resourced. And to, to mention on top of which, um, I just I really do think that the psychological makeup of people who can be who it's not about being successful as an entrepreneur, just being able to withstand the pressures and the rigors of it. Right. Um, it's not it's not a common trait as I no. think a lot of other more knowledgeable people have sort of uh, illustrated. But I think it's something that's worth sort of making sure that we are all on the same page on. So. I, I agree, and like it, I look at this sort of from two perspectives. One is like if you look at the mid to late '60s in the United States, it was probably really cool to aspire to be an astronaut, but most people couldn't put up with the stress associated with doing it. Exactly. That's great. That's yeah. That's true. <laughs> as, as cool as it is, and then the other thing I believe is just like charisma, right? You cannot teach people how to be comfortable with risk. So you can have a class of two hundred students who learn about entrepreneurship and everybody should learn about it because even if you don't do it, you have to be able to put it into context so you can understand what your cousin's doing, what your aunt is doing and why they're doing it. But you also have to understand what's not right for yourself. And I think you make a really great point out of those 200 kids. It's probably right for two of them. And that statistically, actually, that's probably right on, right on par. Yeah. Yeah? 1%, maybe it's a little bit higher, but at the most, um, but it doesn't mean you don't teach them about it because, again, you know, some people learn chemistry and don't turn into chemists. Yeah, exactly, exactly. They just—it's yeah—it's just awareness, right? I mean, the more the more awareness we have about the type of work that folks are doing, it's, I think it, it does help make sure the ecosystem fit together fits together properly. So yeah, I agree. So tell me a little bit. We don't have so much time left, which is yeah. in a way, which is awesome for me, right? So at some point in 2012, you said. 
I'm a healthcare professional. I'm a well-trained doctor. I understand the legal side of things. I have this itch to start my own company. And then can you tell me about the genesis of my doc, like how that happened and maybe a little bit of the story behind that, how yeah. the founding went, who the people are, all that kind of stuff. I'm really curious because, because the, the, the follow-on question to that is going to have to be, you know, it's a crowded field, right? Yeah, that's true. And, Very true. But it doesn't mean, you, you know, I, and again, I look at a whole bunch of things sort of in an analogous way, and that is, you know, there's Breyer's ice cream, there's Ben and Jerry's, there's Hagen dazs like there's a flavor for everybody, right? So mm -hmm. it doesn't mean there's only one company that's going to win in any one particular sector. So I'm curious how it started, what the difference is, and like, you know, how, how it's going as well. Yeah. So, I mean, how it started, uh, I'll sort of bring us back to the Sena Partners example. So, you know, my, my, myself, my two partners, for me, what I really brought to the table was my prior four years of experience with, the, with our, our private equity or family office, right. exploring on the ground how, and our focal point for that, for the, the healthcare business was very much outpatient focused. You know, it, it actually, to this day, kind of, it drives me nuts that when people think of healthcare, the first, and this is a word association game I've done multiple times. Tell me. Um, the first thing that people think about when they think of healthcare, they think of a hospital. Right. Um, and that I think is intrinsic. That's actually indicative of the big problem that we face when it comes to healthcare. Um, yes, the hospital is a very important part of that equation, but it's only one part. And actually, if you look at the number of services that are offered in the healthcare space, it is actually a small percentage. I mean, in terms of the number of people that actually consume healthcare services that actually consume the services in a hospital, it's in the, you know, the teens. So we need to sort of dismiss or change that sort of paradigm. And so with my family office, the focal point was very clearly on a much larger outpatient space. That includes everything from your GP, your specialist, to going and picking up, you know, uh, OTC drugs at Guardian or whatever it is, right? Like all these different touch points are actually part of our healthcare system. And in many ways, that part is the part where we can, if we properly structure solutions around it, we can start to drive people away from the hospital so that we catch them earlier on. We're able to sort of prevent sort of issues before right. they become, well, not forget the expense, but also the pain and the suffering. Um, and so that's what we did. And, we, and our model there was we looked at markets like Indonesia, India, Vietnam, Philippines. Um, what was interesting was that even though those markets are quite different in many ways, culturally, linguistically, the similarities in the fact that the outpatient ecosystem was similarly fragmented, which means, which means to say there was no connectivity whatsoever between the different parts of that equation, was the striking similarity. And what we would do... As, as a good you know, PE sort of shop would do from, from that perspective is do roll-ups. You'd buy the different assets, put them into one brand, change the brand, and it worked well. You know, like you'd end up creating common standards, SOPs, SLAs, yep. sort of the classic sort of operational playbook to make sure that what you're doing is fits a, fits a certain standard. And, it, and people, can't, people came, and it was successful because of that. When I stepped off, though, what I realized was um, part of the reason stepping off was like, look, if I wanted to build my own business and it sort of leverage that experience set, I need to really think more deeply about how to do that in a much more capital um, efficient manner. Right. I don't have billions of dollars and I don't want to raise that kind of money to be able to do this. And that's when tech came in. And I, you know, to be, to be completely transparent, I, at that point, I was always a gadget freak and I still am to this day, but mm -hmm. um, it was not as if I was I had a comp sci background or really understood that space from, a, from an intuitive level. But what I realized was that if I had the right sort of wing person, you know, a co-founder that did, I think we could be pretty formidable in terms of creating a solution that essentially took 80% of the market in healthcare, which is outpatient care, and stitching together the component pieces that currently are completely fragmented. And that fragmentation leads to all sorts of things, leading from, from errors to um, wastage of resources to just, you know, essentially people falling through the cracks right. where they end up in the hospital. So that was like the simple big idea. Like, okay, you, and then you pitch it to people, and they, they look at just look at me like you're completely crazy. That just makes no sense. Because why, why, why? how the hell are you going to start a company and you know, bring together large, you know, entrenched, very difficult to change organizations and right. stitch them together? That makes that's just stupid. It doesn't make sense. And then we heard that a lot. And you know what we were told oftentimes was like, well, why don't you just do the simple? What we know works in tech, right. which is you've got to buy or sell or print a marketplace, right? That's what you should be doing. But, you know, every time you – know, so then I – so it was myself, my co-founder. My co-founder is also a physician, so that's the other sort of weird wrinkle in our, in our founding story is that the two of us were both doctors, which is quite rare, actually, when it comes to health tech. 
Um, but the similarity ended there in the sense that my co-founder had founded a prior tech, uh, health tech business, a teleradiology business here in Singapore, Singaporean physician. And so he brought to the table, to the two of us, sort of the experience on the tech side. Um, and so that's sort of ran from the two, when we started comparing notes, we said, look, we'd be a good founding team. We think we would be because we, we sort of complementary, even though our sort of core sort of value prop is the fact we're both physicians or at least trained in, in, in medicines so that helps us understand the nuances of a sector that can be quite complex. Right. So you know, skipping back to where I was originally in terms of like, well, you know, we just reject the vision of this buyer market, the buyer seller marketplace, because I have yet, you know, and I spent a lot of time sort of, understanding the business models in the U.S. <clears throat> that sort of had predated what we were doing. And the buyer-seller marketplace for healthcare just doesn't – it never sat well with me because it doesn't really um, – it's not similar to the way the, the healthcare is administered. And, I mean, we can all agree that healthcare is inefficient, it's bureaucratic, et cetera, et cetera. But I also realize that it's not one of those things like an Uber that's going to be wiped away by the fact that we created a you know a teleconsult app but for a doctor and a patient. No, it's There's too it's too complex and too many moving pieces. Exactly, and there and there and and so for us we we went contrarian. We said, look, we're going to do what no one thinks will ever work is we're going to actually disrupt the space by working with it. Right. Um, in other words. Let's look at the big guys, realize that they are the, the, the gap in the sort of my analogy or my sort of uh, metaphor of the market gap was that you'd have big organizations that want to do things that are quote unquote innovative and they know they need to get out and, and start engaging their patients or customers in a way that drives costs down but increases convenience. But they're, they are so sort of legacy bound that they don't know how to do that. And what we can do is sort of show that actually, you know, partner A, big insurer, for example, with partner B, pharmacy, partner C being you know, clinical group, if we provide the plumbing that connects those different services that are currently offline oh my God. to legacy, we now all of a sudden have created this much more virtuous cycle that, that works within their existing frameworks, um, but also provides an entire new service layer. And that's sort of what we that was the vision from, from day one. And then we spent two years, like, you know, literally, like, well, not literally, but basically metaphorically sloughing around the mud trying to make it happen. And, <laughs> and, and, and I mean, honestly, we hit exactly all the barriers and all the naysayers at first. Like, ah, it's going to take you way too long to close near clients and it's going to yep. take too much time. And that's all true. All, I'm not going to sit here and deny any of it. It took us a, a damn long time. But, you know, this is where that persistence point comes in. And I, this, I, I can harken back to what my... Um, what my mentor said. I was like, look, if you really believe in it, and this is not some sort of kumbaya. No, 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 not at all. No, not at all. I get that. I get that. Keep going, keep going toward the wall and just keep banging your head against the wall. Mm -hmm. Maybe the wall will move. That's not going to happen, right? No, no. But the macro here is pretty clear. Like you've got everything that we know about Asia, right? You've got a rapidly urbanizing sort of middle class, people who are taking to their devices like no other group in the world, um, you know, a, a generally sort of innovative population or innovation sort of embrace population. You don't have sort of the hangups around privacy you have nope. in the U.S. So you put all that into a big, you know, big pot, mix it, and you say, okay, on top of that, I'm going to drop uh, rapidly increasing healthcare costs, not just because of the increase in sort of premiums, et cetera, but because governments, in fact, by adding more more services, which is a good thing, to their baseline plans, are driving costs up, right? So all this stuff in a big stew, you're like, look, this is not going to work well. This is not going to end up in a position where there's pressure is going to just naturally dissipate. They're going to need solutions to fix this. And if we can provide a layer that allows us to do two things, one is drive costs down by increasing convenience. We have built ourselves a pretty credible, I would say niche, but, you know, in sort of the Peter Thiel version, the monopoly that we want to build, you know, like we're the best in this market when it comes to being able to create that structure. Right. And so that's what we did. And I think, you know, to date we've, we're pretty, we're pretty happy with our sort of progress. Um, you know, in terms of our partnerships, we've got some really blue chip you know, companies on board. I you saw know, that. The access AIAs, uh, the corporate side, you know, Singapore is great to launch a, a, a product like this because you, you do get access to, you know, the MNC headquarters of all the big companies in the world. Right. So I think those pieces are really becoming realizable. And then finally, the the, the kicker was, you know, the, the hypothesis was that if we do that and we're working with these big sort of groups, we might be able to surmount what tends to be the biggest issue for startups in Southeast Asia, which is how do you expand from market to market? And especially for B2C, 
you know, typically you start from scratch. You may have a good brand, but then you have to start your sales and marketing, your operations are all from scratch. What we're seeing is that we're now able to go into new markets quickly because of our client list, right. who are all pan-regional. So for us to be able to launch with, you know, an AXA in, in another market, that's pretty easy because, okay, they already know us, and it's actually an easier process because we've been de-risked, right? They've, the other, the Singapore team has already done all, the, all that hard work for them. So I think that's sort of the other, the last piece of where we see this going and how we intend to sort of to scale based on the relationships we've built today. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to say except this, first of all, this is a great place to end. I've got so many more questions, but I don't want to take up any more of your time. But the second thing I want to say is this, is that you have completely encapsulated using your business as an example my entire investment thesis. And let me repeat it for you just so you know that I'm, I'm not talking out of my ears. And that is, yep. you take a fragmented market, okay, using technology, you scale it and consolidate it, and you build another layer in the middle of it. You can say on top, I like to say in the middle. And then okay. you just, and, but again, it, it, it's just semantics, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. It's just a semantic difference, but it's the same. You're saying the same thing. And I think if you can build a business that works along with existing businesses, the money's already there, the clients are already there, but it's very yep. fragmented. You consolidate that using tech. You build that other layer so that now every outpatient location, which before was completely disconnected, hence the fragmentation, is now mm -hmm. connected somehow. Yep. Now you've got a potentially massive business. And I, like you... I don't necessarily believe in any particular vertical because in, inside that inside that ecosystem because I can't guess necessarily which one of those vertical providers is going to succeed or fail but I do know that that type of service is going to succeed but if I build that layer everyone's going to have to plug into my layer and exactly. I'm going to be the success yeah right. that's how that's I feel so that's what you've built yeah I and mean, that's that was the the that's the hypothesis and that's what we're building exactly that's exactly right Okay. I love it. <laughs> Sorry. I don't even know how we ended up at this place, but that's kind of where I wanted to end up today. I think today was actually fascinatingly interesting to me. I hope it was interesting to you as well. Yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah. So what I'd like, what I'd like to do is I'd like to end here, not because I think it's a great place to end, but just because I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, right? It's getting late in Singapore. I, I really want to thank you for taking the time to do this. And what I also want to ask you is, will you come back on the show again? I like to follow up yeah. right? because I like to not stew about it, but I like to think about it. I like to ponder it. And then later on, I like to have some kind of experts in a field. And you're clearly the expert in this field with the combination of, you know, the MD, the JD, the business, the investing both inside and outside of, um, you know, venture capital, but also sort of the medical and health tech um, sector, which I, I actually love. I mean, I've done a lot of work on this and I've spoken to a lot of people on it. Is there a, is there a link or some type of way that people can get in touch with you or that you'd like to share with people that I can put in the show notes or that you'd like to talk about now? And then when we publish this, which will be over the next couple of weeks, people will know like where to find you and how to get in touch with you. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, our website has a contact us page. Right. Um, would that be the easiest thing to do? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, my, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm already there, right? My doc. Yeah. Yeah. And the about us, and there's a contact page there. Yeah. Um, and how about, can I ask you one more question about Santa Partners? Do you take, yes, sure. is, it's not a GPLP structure, right? It's your own principal money that you invest, or do you raise money from outside? And if you do, is it only kind of after you've done the proof of concept? Yeah, so exactly. It's not an LPGP structure. It's just our capital. So Got it. We, we keep it captive for that reason. Um, it, I mean, we wanted to make it sort of, and it's, we're not. I, I wish one day it's a family office. We're not. We're nowhere near at this point. <laughs> Essentially, in, in, in that sense, it's private capital. But it's also the ability for us to. I mean, look. I think the the benefit entrepreneurship on your own is a very difficult game. Yeah. No, it's really tough. And I actually think that one of the things that my partners at the Santa level have been able to provide me is the ability that they've known me for almost, you know, we've known each other in New York. So they're, they're, they're close friends, but they they know my biases. They know right. where I can go off. Right. And I trust them to pull me back. Correct. I think that's one of those things that are very, very important to, in order to create sort of successful business or anything in life. Yeah. Um, so that's really our model. Like, look, we'll always keep that sort of our captive. We do raise money at the, at the actual opco level. I mean, right. You know, uh, my doc has, has been venture funded and we've got great angels, et cetera. But 
that's the same model has always been the three of us to try to like, okay, I'm not day to day. I'm not, you know, we may not even be on the board, but we're going to sit down have a beer. We're going to discuss the issues and it's going to be much more like hard. It's going to be much more direct stuff. It's not about sort of, you know, uh, the surface issues that you're having. Like what are, what are you really, what's keeping up at night? What are you really sort of having a, a philosophical quandary over? And right. let me, and let me, you know, give me some advice on that. Yeah, and I do love the idea of having partners that know you really well and can actually, again, know your biases, your own inconsistencies, and can actually rein you back in or push you further along in places where that's yeah. necessary as well. Exactly. Oh, this has been a super conversation, really. <laughs> I hate getting off the phone, but I really, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. It you know, takes a lot of organizational time and a lot of mental energy, but I really appreciate it. And hopefully we'll be able to get you back on the show in the yeah. future to just continue the conversation. Thanks, Michael. Really appreciate it. No, it's been a great conversation as well on my side. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, always, it's always great to hear and, and meet sort of people, kindred folks, I guess, in some ways. That's kindred spirits. People who think similarly, I think it's exciting, right? It's exciting the kind of work we're doing, and uh, now we appreciate it. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.